So Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other one is still far away, he sends a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that we would... Um, hear what this text is saying, allow it to challenge us. And then Lord, that we would respond in a way that's pleasing to you. We love you, Lord. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So I don't know why each of you are at church today. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to discourage people from coming to church. We want people to come to church or I want people to come to church to learn to grow. For years, I would go to church for other reasons than to encounter God. It was out of an obligation. My parents uh, made me go to give an hour. God had given me the whole week. And so I owed him an hour on Sundays or I felt sort of drawn there. Like I wanted to get something um, from it. This passage, I, I hope you felt it. I mean, this is not the Jesus that we know and love and have created in our minds. Uh, going through the, the story of Christ in the gospels, we see that Jesus often hit people like in like right across their foreheads with who he was and he turned away many it's the very opposite that we see in churches around our nation this day that we want to build big crowds that we want to make the gospel easier to swallow that the medicine would go down well so we'll soften things in order to allow a bigger crowd and jesus wasn't like this in this passage i'll be totally honest with you it's, 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 it's a challenge for me this week studying, wrestling through this. And I think that the point of this passage is, is Jesus is trying to wake up those who are following after him, that they would ponder, they would consider, they would wrestle through the facts of who he is. Now, the context here is, begins in verse 25. We read that now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, before we continue to what he said, Remember, the last few weeks, Jesus has been encountering and talking with and challenging the religious establishment, the Pharisees and scribes, those who had created a long laundry list of things to do and not to do if you want to be okay with God. He basically attacked. He said, you guys are, are missing the whole point. God has entrusted you to lead people to him. And yet you yourselves haven't trusted and don't have a relationship with God. And then you create all these rules that you don't even obey and you force them on the people and you're breaking their back. And I can see the people that were following after Jesus are on the on the skirts witnessing this kind of cheering like, oh, yeah, give it to him, Jesus. Here's our Messiah. He's going to set us free from Rome. We are so happy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's go. He's got these crowds. It's a big party. And so as this party sort of developing, he turns and looks at them. And he begins to address this crowd. And in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's going to be three phrases that this phrase is sort of used three times. It's twice 
unless you do this certain thing, if you get rid of certain things, you can't be my disciple. And then unless you do something like there's two negatives and a positive, if that makes sense. This, this first one is challenging. Like hates. And the Greek word is hate. And it's even more disconcerting because this isn't like a mild form of hate. This is like a, like a vile hatred, a despising, disturbing to me. And then in this, this is like for free of charge. It does like it really has no application, but it's just looking at the text. I don't know if this crowd, because I like to bring the story alive. And so I don't know if the crowd is all men or if he's only addressing the men here. He uses his a lot, which isn't really the big deal. But in the laundry list of people that you're to hate, notice it says your father and mother. And then it says and wife and children and sisters. And yes, even his own life. So there's no, there's no husband here. So I'm not quite sure the picture, but there's definitely like a lot of men here. Because if there were a bunch of women or he was addressing the women, he would have obviously included husband. But he doesn't. And I don't know if that matters. I think it all applies to all of us here. But here's this strong, how do we handle this? In, in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, earlier in this year, Jesus said this to them. He says, but I say to you who hear... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. We covered that on Mother's Day. I only remember because it was a week after bin Laden and I had to preach on this text. God's sense of humor. So is Jesus telling us that everybody who hates us and picks on us and calls us names, we're to love them. And then all of our most intimate relationships, our mom, dad, husband, wife, children, brothers and sisters, we're, we're to hate them. Love your enemies, hate your loved ones. I don't know. Like, I I would have to wrestle with that one. I don't think that's the case. Because we know that in 1 Timothy 5, 8, the scriptures tell us, but if anyone doesn't provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So later in scripture, believers, those who follow after Christ, disciples are told Hey, if you don't provide for your family, if you don't take care of your loved ones, you're worse than an unbeliever. You're denying the faith. And so here's this like pendulum of extremes. And nobody, nobody thinks that Jesus is literally saying, hate your family, hate your loved ones. But this is called a Semitic hyperbole, like a Jewish way that I, I didn't create that on my own. I read it somewhere and I quoted it. But it was like a Jewish way of like using hyperbole, a very extreme sort of statement in order to cause sort of this like backlash. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. What what did he just say? Did he just say to hate all of these people? Like it gives us something to sort of chew on. But what does he mean hate? And in our culture, we don't necessarily... By coming to Christ, by trusting in Christ, there's not suddenly this like breakdown of family, like there's like this disconnect. But if you go to the Muslim world, or if you're in a Mormon family, or you're in a culture that for you to accept Christ suddenly is to reject your whole family and is to walk away from your family, it's a whole different sort of perspective. And I would suggest even in our culture, in our Christian realm of society, of friends and family that identify with Christ but are not believers, if you truly live your life as a disciple of Christ, there's going to be some sort of resistance in your family that even identify with Christ. This week, uh, next year, um, in December to January, there's there's a conference that happens once every three years. And I would highly encourage every person that's in the 18 to 24 to 25 year old range to pray about attending this seminar. It's a week-long seminar. It's called Urbana. And it's in the mid, it's like the, somewhere, you know, anywhere east of California. It's like a blur. And then you go, it's in the cold spot. I think it's Illinois somewhere in that area at a college in a thing. But it happens once every three years. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conference that, that, that exposes kind of what God's doing worldwide and is a challenge for young people basically to live for God. Now on their website as they're um, looking forward to this event, there was a letter that a, that a young person had written 
And the letter basically was saying, hey, I feel called to go serve the Lord overseas, but my mom and dad are totally against it. How do I handle this? How do I honor my parents yet submit to Christ? And it was like, who? And I can't tell you how many friends and family I have. Like I can count a number of people that I know that have very strong intentions of going to the mission field. They, they interviewed, they were in the process, they were heading there. Mom, dad, grandma, cousins, how can you do this to us? How could you take our grandkids, our grandbabies, our children and go across the world to this place of these people that we hate? How could you do this to us? And they said, I can't, I, they, they basically, and I'm not them and I don't, you know, but, but hopefully they got peace from God. But I know plenty who said, no, Lord, I can't do this because my family. And that would be a caution to us as parents. Like I'm like from the day grace was born, I've been like this with her. Lord, help me help. Like I want her to live for the Lord and Lord, help me prepare me. If you do call any one of my kids overseas. And I look at our I I look at our missionary families that we support, like especially the Manning family. Like both parents were like missionaries. Then all of the kids are like scattered around the world, and the sacrifice that they make in the world looks. How could you hate your family like this? And see, the issue I don't think is about hating your family. I think the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that if you're my disciple, which leads us to a question: What is disciple? Disciple is not believer. Disciple, I'm hoping this is not who I thought it was, but Dave Bishop. Dave Bishop likes to spar with me theologically. We agree, but we spar. And last week he came up to me. He's like, I've been studying this passage. I'm ready for next week. Like, I want to talk to you about disciple. And so I've been doing my homework on disciple. It's fascinating. It's used 261 times in the New Testament. Only found in the Gospels and Acts. Out of the 261 times this Greek word is used, only one time it's used other than disciple. And the one other time it's used is pupil. Disciple means learner, follower. And so Jesus says, if you want to be my learner, my follower, see all of this group of people's following him. They want to identify with him as rabbi. He says, oh, if you want to follow me, this is what it takes to be a disciple. And the point isn't so much that you hate your family, but it's that you love him so much and you're so consumed with him that all other relationships, your most intimate relationships appear to be hate. Not that you hate them because we're clearly commanded to love our families. And I mean, we're commanded to love everybody, even our enemies. But the most intimate of relationships that we have, our passion and love for Christ as a disciple should be so zealous that these other relationships should seem like you hate them. So he wants, he wants this, this passion for him. He goes on to say, kind of, I think, going from this very last statement where he says all of these other relationships, when he gives the most important relationship that we have, yes, his own life, because we're numero uno, correct? Like we're the most important person in the whole wide world as far as like we concern, because the world does kind of revolve around us from our perspective. I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying, kind of acknowledging this is kind of how we all are for being honest with each other. So then he goes from that and says, unless you hate these relationships, you can't be my disciple. He goes on to say, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Very interesting. What does he mean by carry the cross? This has been my question. Well, what does this mean to carry my cross? We know that a cross is, it was the most lethal, cruel form of Capital punishment. The Romans were brilliant in executing people. I mean, they, it was this was this was you would take days to die. You would be used railroad ties through your wrist. They they nail railroad ties into your wrist through your ankles, and you would basically the cause of death was suffocation. That eventually you couldn't stand up to take the breath to come back down, and you would essentially drown. Your lungs would start filling with fluid. But see, he doesn't right away, like, like it's a form of execution, like to die to self. But even beyond that, because not many of us are, are, are so concerned, like, oh, I can live for Jesus and not die. I'll cover that aspect. But there was another element of, of the crucifixion or the cross. The carrying of the cross was a whole nother aspect of the crucifixion process as far as Rome was concerned. There, it, it served two purposes. 
The first purpose was you would carry the cross and there would be a public spectacle. Everybody would be there. And this would serve as a warning to the citizens of Rome. This is a person who violated our laws. And if you do this, this will happen to you. Our capital punishment happens 20, 30, 40, 50 years after the crime happens in a cold, quiet, isolated place. Nobody's aware of it. Very opposite from their standard. Now, the second point, the first point was to like show everybody that this was a warning, something that you should caution of. The second element Now, I'm not saying that everybody carrying their cross would agree with Rome on this. But this is Romans. The Roman position was by carrying the cross to your execution spot. What you were saying is Rome is right. I was wrong. I agree with them and I submit to their punishment on me so much so that I'm going to carry my instrument of execution to the spot. And I am essentially executing myself sort of thing. So there's this idea of submitting like the individual. Now, I'm not saying that every individual agreed with this, but this was Roman sort of policy on execution. Now, that sort of changes how I see this. Not totally and entirely, but when for us Americans that have it pretty easy in following Christ, whoever does not carry his own Christ and come to me, this is the idea of submission. Like so many people have accepted Christ in our culture, yet they reject everything that he says. Oh, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus, but... You know, I follow Jesus and then there's the star. You go down to the fine print and there's all the exclusions of stuff that they don't want to do. See, but Jesus is, what's that saying? Jesus is Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. Like this idea of like, no, you're submitting to him because he's Lord. That I come to him and I do things not because I think um, I like it or I want to do it. But because he's Lord, he's commanded it and I'm submitting to his lordship and I believe that he's Lord. Now, all of the early disciples, they would probably disagree with me, just for the record, because all of them, except for John, was executed. Peter, so much so, who was here, Peter, when it was kind of, they were going to execute, they were going to crucify Peter. And at his crucifixion, he begged and pleaded with his executioners, saying, I am not worthy to be executed in the same manner that my Lord was executed. And so they honored his request and they crucified him upside down, which is intense. Half of you people have probably been wondering that there's, who's this guy behind me? Yeah. The other half are like, I don't even, oh, there's a guy behind Gunner. You know, this guy, I'm bad with names. I'm going to refer to him as Yosef. His last name is Nadar Khani. He's a 34-year-old pastor in Iran. Today, as we speak, he is in prison in Iran. He was sentenced to death recently through a number of appeals and groups petitioning him all the way up to um, the secretary of state hillary clinton has made appeals for him and others um, to pardon his execution his 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 sense of death um they've they've kind of put it on hold because if they execute this guy now there's going to be such an explosion of worldwide but they haven't released him from prison And so this group, uh, Present Truth Ministries, has been trying to figure out, like, hey, like talking with Iran, why have you not released him yet? I'm going to read a little article to save time. And this is the response. This this is where the article picks up. The goal of keeping him in prison, Present Truth Ministries said, is to, quote, unquote, use whatever means necessary to cause him to recant and to return to Islam. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton issued a statement on December 9th Like this is nine days ago. Like this is, he sits in prison today, real time right now. Calling for Yosef and several other prisoners of conscience worldwide to be released immediately and unconditionally. Yosef was sentenced to death a year ago after a court of appeals found him guilty of leaving Islam. The case dates back to 2009 when um, Yosef was arrested after complaining that his son was being taught Islam in school. He eventually was sentenced to death by the Court of Appeals. Earlier this year, the Iranian Supreme Court upheld the death sentence but ordered a lower court to examine whether Yosef was ever a Muslim, a fact essential to determine whether he left Islam for Christianity but remained guilty of apostasy because he had a Muslim ancestry. In late September of this year, he was given four chances to recant his faith in court and refused each time his case then was referred to the ayatollah the american center of law and justice reported that one 
reported one of the court exchanges. Repent means to return. What should I return to? To the blasphemy that I had before my faith in Christ, Yosef asked. To the religion of your ancestors, Islam, the judge reportedly replied. I cannot, the pastor responded. When I read stories like that, these martyrs that have given all their lives in following Christ, and I read Jesus' words in verse 27 that says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It causes me great turmoil in my like, in my soul, which I think is what Jesus wants us to do. Like how badly are we following after Jesus? Like that old, like Jesus in this story, he is literally approaching Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin. So for my sin, for your sin, for our sin, it was placed on Jesus who never sinned, who had no sin. He did it so that we might have life in him. And it's like that old hymn that I love. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Like, is it unreasonable for him to like ask his disciples, not believers, learners of him, followers of Christ, to give this much? And I don't know that I don't know that any of us can answer that question. Like until you're faced with like your life and denying Christ, like I don't know what's in me. And none of us do. But but what I do know is I know that week after week, every Saturday night before preaching the word. Like, it's, it is a wrestling match with me and God. Like, I've known I was going to have to cover this text, like, for a long time. But really, you know, really, it starts dawning on me, like, Sunday at 1 o'clock when this week's passed and I start looking forward. Like, next week is way easier. Talk about baby Jesus. Everybody loves it. We're going to sing Christmas carols, fellowship. But this one, I'm like, Jesus, there's, like, there could be visitors is there any way I can tone this down? Like, is there any way I could like make a funny joke or do something? So kind of like the severity of what you're saying, because I really like all of you and I do want you guys to like me. And I know God loves you and I don't want a visitor to come and take this all out of, you know, take this all out of context and then start hating God because I presented it wrong. But I have to say, no, Lord, like carry my cross. Like I'm going to present your word faithfully. And when I look at these guys, like I'm challenged. And I know that God wants us to be challenged in seeing this story. And I believe that when he says to see verses 26 and 27, although Jesus wasn't speaking in verses, he was just speaking. And when this was written, there were no verses. It's just a story. He tells first, okay, if you want to be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate these most intimate people. You cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me. There's a crowd of people. And I imagine at this point, there's a young rich ruler saying, it's been fun. I'm going back. I'm going to I'm going to wait for the next group on the way into Israel, because as they would caravan into Israel, they would or not into Israel, but into Jerusalem. It's a huge hill. You got to go up. The Psalms, all the happy Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent from like Psalm in the middle there. If you look up Psalms of Ascent, all these great songs praising God. Party entering into Jerusalem. I'm going to wait for the next group that's going up to Jerusalem. The party, I'm out of here. And, and I imagine Jesus, when he's saying this, he can see on their faces. And if not on their faces, he certainly knows the condition of their heart. The recoil that we're all feeling in hearing these verses. I hope I'm not the only one. Like, I can see the look on your faces right now. It's like, everybody's like, oh, man, God is up in the ante on my walk with him big time. And then Jesus stops, and he's going to tell a story to kind of help accentuate his point. Verse 28, he's going to talk, 28 and 29, he's going to talk about a tower. Verses 31 through 32, he's going to explain a, a kingdom that's about to be invaded. And so verses 28 through 30 it's the tower it says for which of you when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it otherwise when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying this man began to build and was unable to finish 
So listen, like in practical terms, if you want to build a building, if you want to add on, you calculate the whole cost. In our reality, you get a contractor or my reality. Can you get a bid? You get a bunch of bids. Go with the lowest bid, you'll probably end, you know, who knows? You want the lowest bid, but you also want the bid that's reasonable that they'll actually finish within that range. So you don't want to start this big project, run out of money, then you have this half-finished project, everybody's going to laugh at you. You count the cost. And I love this about Jesus. See, it, we're, this church is Baptist, which I'm kind of, I mean, I technically am Baptist, but Baptists are like so big into like walking the aisle every week. Raise your hand and walk the aisle. And I'm not saying there's anything bad about that. It's just not my style. I, my, like what I see here is Jesus is like, no, I don't want an emotional response from you. I want you to count the cost. I want you to survey, evaluate. That's why we offer free case for Christ. Read the case for Christ. Evaluate the facts. Look at all the evidence. I can't tell you how many believers they've, or people that have made professions of Christ, they start out zealous with an emotional sort of peel because they were at a concert and they were all jazzed up and the guy spoke and, you know, in the excitement, got him to come forward. And, and maybe it lasts for a week. Maybe it lasts for two weeks. Maybe it lasts for a year. And then all of a sudden, when resistance comes, there's a turning away from the faith. They crash and burn because they haven't evaluated who Christ is and what the whole implications are. J. Vernon McGee says this. It will cost something to make a decision for Christ. It will cost something to be his disciple. Think it over, friend. Isn't that J. Vernon McGee? Friend. I wish I had his axes. Think it over, friend. You should count the cost before the decision. And so this is like to me, this is what baptism is all about. Like baptism, the person comes to Christ, they've evaluated, they've thought about it. By the time they get baptized, they're standing publicly and said, no, I've counted the cost. I'm standing for Christ. I'm moving forward. I don't want the whole world to know. But if no one, what's that song? If no one should follow, like, I don't see, I'm bad with songs. I got, it would be really good if I was like, you know, could, if no one follows still, I will say, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I blew it. Lost the moment. And so as he's talking about counting the cost, He's going to say, consider what you're up against. Verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other one is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He says, okay, here's, in, in warfare, you have one kingdom. He has 10,000 soldiers. The other guy has 20,000 soldiers. The guy with 20,000 soldiers is about to invade, invade his land. He has the runners that are running back. Hey, they're on their way in. They're five miles out. They're 10 miles out. They're maybe 40 miles out. They're coming. They're loaded to bear. The guy's going to sit down. Okay, we got 10,000. Can we take him? Can we not take him? There's no way we can take him. If we fight him, we're going to get annihilated. Let's send a delegation, offer terms of peace. Like, let's try to figure out something so we don't have to go to war. It'll be the best thing for our nation, even if we lose our nation. And the question is, who are you up against? Jesus asking, who are you up against? And if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you're up against God. You're up against God. Last week, I joked about that verse that Christians will often call me. They're in a loving debate with a family or friend who trying to share Christ with them. The discussion's gone south. And they're trying to pull out the atomic bomb of showing that they're right and the other person is wrong. And not, they've lost the, they've kind of lost the, the intellectual discussion. Now they're arguing to win. Where does it say that every knee's going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? That whole passage is talking about Jesus's humility that we as Christians are supposed to be humble in spirit. That he is God. He was in heaven, yet he humbled himself and became man. He lived a perfect life. That he died on a cross shamefully. Out of love for us. And we're supposed to, to mimic that sort of love. That he, that sort of humility. And at the end of that. It says because he did this. One day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And while I kind of made light of that last week. The reality is that is absolutely true. Every person. Believer and unbeliever. Will stand before God at their death. Or when he comes. Every knee. Every person. Madonna, you, I don't know why Madonna just came to mind. Everybody, Madonna came to mind and nobody else. <laughs> but there are other people out there. 
There are, oh, there's all kind of unbelievers out there. And everybody is going to bend their knee when they face God. And they'll confess that he's Lord, but it won't be unto salvation. It'll be unto destruction. And Jesus is saying there, count the cost. Figure out what you're up against. Figure out who I am. Understand that you're going to face God at the end of your life. Right now, I'm offering terms of peace. You can have peace with God, but it's going to require sacrifice. And I'm not suggesting that salvation is by work. Salvation is by grace alone. And we'll kind of get to that at the end. But if you're going to follow after me, there's going to be sacrifice. And I would suggest that if you're struggling with who Christ is or you're not sure if you've made it, it's not hard to become a Christian. It's about believing that Jesus loves you so much that he came to earth to live his life, to die for you. He's chasing after you. He's seeking your heart. He wants you to trust in him. But that offer goes off the table at the time of your death or his return. It's not an indefinite sort of thing because God is holy and we have sin and sin separates us from God. And after he leaves this idea of counting the cost, verse 33, the third discipleship point, he says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. I don't like this. (laughs) I really don't like this. Like this is hate your family and all your loved ones. Pick up your cross and follow after me. And basically walk away from all your stuff. And I laugh at myself because my very first inclination is to like, you know, to kind of like push back. He doesn't mean we got to literally give up everything we have. But then I went to read the New Testament. Peter walked away from his business. Paul was a very wealthy man, walked away from everything. The early church, they gave up all of their stuff to care for one another. No, I'm not suggesting like I really don't. And like just like I don't think God's calling us to give everything away. But I think what he wants is for us to be like Job. In Job 121, the very end of the first chapter after Job, whose whole life came crashing down, not because he was a bad guy, but because he was the best guy that God could show to Satan. He said, I don't care what you do to him. He will not curse my name. He'll love me. And so Satan starts going and got with God's permission to slowly decimate everything, all his wealth, all of his family. And at the very end of that chapter, Job says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is what I call an open-handed theology. Here's Job with his hands open. Whether he has much that God's placed in his hands, he's still going to praise God. If God wants to take all of this stuff away, he's still going to praise God. I amazed myself this week because I actually remember that I did read one book as a kid that I can remember. I take no other credit. I, I, don't, I can't think of any other book, like in all, like up to high school. I read a lot of movies. I read the, those little yellow books, Cliff Notes, to study for the studs. But there was one book as a child, because I Googled it to verify that I wasn't just making it up, is Where the Red Fern Grows. Loved it as a little boy. I got a fist pump back there. I mean, it's a, it's a book made for, for little boys that are becoming men. It's about shooting things, bloodhounds, all kinds of cool stuff. And I remember that in that story, it talked about a raccoon. I've never been raccoon hunting. So if anybody goes raccoon hunting, let me know. But and I haven't, like, for the sake of this, it's true. I haven't researched it. I've never done it. But apparently with a raccoon, at least in this book, what they would do is they would drill a little hole into a tree or a piece of wood so that the raccoon could get his hand into it But then when he grabbed the shiny object, the coin or the piece of aluminum foil, he could not pull his hand out or she. Even if somebody came, I don't remember how they killed the little guy, but even when his life was on the line, he would not let go of that shiny object. And I think that this is the risk we have with our stuff. We hold on so tightly to our stuff. Lord, don't take my stuff away. Our stuff can be stuff. It can be our family. It can be our children. 
Like, I'll never forget Joel Couillard's. And I have, like, the fact that they're in the Caribbean, like, they're having fun and stuff, but I'm kind of jealous. But I literally, I don't, it wasn't Grace, but it was Elizabeth. So we brought Elizabeth home, and he looks at me, and he's like, brother, with tears in his eyes, she's already gone. She's like, she's already gone. She'll be gone before you know it. I'm like, Joel, I just got her home from the hospital. I know she's good. At, I mean, because his little baby had just gotten married and had moved away. And he's got like tears in his eyes. She's already gone. Start dealing with it. And like, Joe, can I have this like moment right now? Like I recognize. But I think with our kids, like I think of this, this letter, like for us, we want to hold on to our kids. Oh, you can't go here. You can't do this. I don't care if God's calling you to do that because I'm so afraid of you, Lo- like losing you. And God wants us to have open hand theology. And Jesus, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to trust me with your stuff. And I'm not afraid to admit that I don't like this in my heart. These three areas are areas that we all, I imagine, need help with. And then he continues in verse 34 and 35, and he gives this illustration. Therefore, salt is good. I give a hearty amen to that. I love salt. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to love it so much, but boy, do I. I mean, we don't need to go into how much I love salt, but I do. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless even for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. They would gather their, their salt mostly down from the Dead Sea. And from what I read is that there were other minerals and sections that would contaminate the salt so that it was useless. They couldn't, I've never used my salt in a manure pile, but apparently it would help the manure pile. Um, or for taste, you know, for soil or for the manure power. It's worthless. If it loses its saltiness, you can't make it salty again. It's thrown out. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. It says the same is true of disciples. They must contain the characteristics of discipleship, planning and willing to sacrifice, or they're of no value. Jesus says, if you want to remain value, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be my pupil, where I am Lord over your life and I'm leading you, You've got to have characteristics of discipleship. You can't say, oh, I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ and I'll follow after him, but I have all of these exceptions. He says, you have no value. Then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And going into chapter 15, which we'll cover in February, it says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. I love this, that the religious people didn't want to hear any of this. But the sick, those that realized their sin, they wanted to hear more. So as I look at this text, we're in the conclusion section, but don't, don't get all excited. We still have a few more minutes. This is like the, so what? What does this all matter? J. Vernon McGee, I think, nails something on the head. I, I read a lot of J. Vernon McGee this week. I like the guy. He said, there's a difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Unfortunately, not all believers are disciples. And I tell you, with my like German blood, like I'm... I like boxes. I like checking them. I like to-do lists. And I, and I like, I, I was not given the gift of moderation. <laughs> and so, so to me, if Jesus paid it all, like you owe them all. Like how can, like how can you believe, like in my flesh, I say, well, how can you believe a believer and not be a sold out disciple? Like how is that possible? But it's, the scripture makes it clear that salvation is not by works. It is not by works at all. Ephesians 2.8 makes it clear that Jesus paid it all. And believing in him, it's by his grace that we're saved. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. And there are those, according to scripture, that I believe they're, they're Christians. They've come to Christ. They have their fire insurance. But God, I think, wants so much more from us. And our lives will be so blessed in our intimacy in which we know Christ. I guarantee you that this man up here on this wall that's sitting in a prison cell, possibly being beaten as we speak right now. And his only prayer request for us is that he would remain faithful to the Lord. 
I would ponder that he has an intimacy with the Lord that none of us in this room know right now. Because he's a, a disciple that has taken this all the way out. And I'm not criticizing us, but I think that this, this form of discipleship, the sort of commitment, there's an intimacy. And these men and women over histories, you read Christian stories and biographies of people, there's like a depth to their relationship that comes with following to this level. So the first question that we always kind of end with, like, are you a believer? Have you come to the place where you've recognized that Jesus died for you? That he's bridged the gap between you and God that your sin separates. In this journey, I love that God invites us to question, to seek, to, to, to do our research, to count the cost, to investigate what we're up against with him. And in John six sixty eight, it's one of my favorite pictures of Simon Peter. Jesus had like, he'd, again, another section, had it hold back any punches. There's this huge crowd of people following him. He starts just going after them. They all scatter thousands of people and only the 12 remain. And Jesus isn't done. Aren't you guys going to leave me as well? Why don't you leave? And Peter, I picture with tears in his eyes, says this in John six sixty eight. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Peter's like, I've done all my whole, like you are the Messiah. I don't care. Like, I don't care. There's no other option. I've tried doing it my way. You're Lord. And I'm giving you all. And that's where Jesus wants us to be with him. And I love that picture. There's three examples of what does it mean to be a disciple? First, being a disciple is loving Jesus more than all other relationships. During this summer, we did VBS. I've told you guys over and over again, I'm horrible with music. I've already demonstrated it once in this message. But one of the songs was like so annoyingly like in your head. You know one of those songs, like the jingles? And to hear the little kids screaming it like out of tone is, I love you more. And it's this girl that's like, she was kind of going and they're dancing around. But it's like, I love you more than ice cream. I love you more than a rock star. I love you more than like all of this stuff. But that song, I think encapsulate what it means. Like a disciple is one that loves Jesus like that. It doesn't mean that you don't love your family. It just means that you love him with this intensity. And I know that when I'm walking with God and things are going well and I'm having a great day, like my spiritual I forget, barometer, thermometer, barometer, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, like, that's a thermostat, right, that I can change the temperature, but then the barometer. When I wake up, and, like, the first thought out of my heart is, like, Lord, you're so good. And I don't have these every day. Like, this is just, like, I know when I'm walking good, and it's like, Lord, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Lord. And I just start with, like, that prayer. Maybe once a month I get those days. Like, but you guys know what I'm talking about when you're just like on fire. That's what he wants. Second point is being a disciple means submitting to Jesus and trusting him with your life. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse one, Romans is this great legal book. The first 11 cases building this theological case for who God is and what he's done for you. And then it's this hinge point in the book, 12 through 16 of Romans. It makes this transition. And Paul writes this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Mercy is God withholding something that we deserve. People complain about, well, this isn't fair that Jesus is the only way. We don't want to start talking about fairness Fairness is a word we want to avoid with God. Fair is we are guilty and condemned before him and we have judgment coming to us. Mercy is he's withhold that and his grace is he stood in our place that we might have life. And he says, I, by the mercies of God, this is what he is urging us, helping us to like move forward in our walk with Lord. It's God's mercy. To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. 
Fascinating if, if you've wrestled with this. What is a sacrifice when you're talking about animals in the Old Testament? That means they got slaughtered. Sacrifice means death. But this is wholly a set-apart living sacrifice. So there's no... I did it better the first time. That you in your life are like, no, Lord, I trust you. I'll follow you. You're calling me to go to Mongolia. Lord, do you know where Mongolia is? Like, this is me. Lord, do you realize that Mongolia is right just south of Russia and China? And I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years. And I really, these are like areas that I don't feel comfortable going to. Yeah, I know. Okay. And I went because I, I trust him with my life. If he wants me dead, I could die right now. Just do every, all systems are green light. If he wants me to live, I can be in an airplane that falls out of the sky and survive. Madden did it. So I could too, if if he wanted me to. I'm not going to give it a shot though. The final point is being a disciple is living life open-handed. Paul in Philippians. Paul was a very wealthy man. Paul Paul, Paul, was, Paul was raised in a family that had extreme wealth. That here is a Jewish citizen. He was born a Roman citizen, which means his money, his family had tons of money. He studied under Gamaliel, who was like the rock star of rabbis that very few were chosen. He was a very elite man, yet he sacrificed all of that in following Christ. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he writes this, as he sat in a prison cell, not that I speak for him once, for I've learned to be content. He learned. Circle that word if you write in your Bible that it's a process of growing. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so here's this picture of Paul saying, I can live open-handed. This is where contentment comes. Paul had much, was, then had little, then had much. He said, I'm content because with Jesus, I have all. My father-in-law talking about this verse, he was, he'd been counseling with this guy he meets with on a regular basis. This guy was a very, very wealthy man. Very wealthy very successful in construction, loved the Lord. And in the last, you know, 10 years, he's lost everything and is living like in a mobile home park. Like, and, and to hear this guy talk with, with his the humility, he's like, you know, this has been my passage of learning to be content. I had everything, like, like we're talking like a lot of money. He had every toy that you could possibly want and he lost it all. He'd lost it all. And he's like, God's been teaching me this. And then my father-in-law talking said, well, as he's talking, because my father-in-law, we're kind of helping this church go through this restarting process. And my father-in-law, who like at 20, when he became a Christ, like Christian, he gave everything away, went to be a missionary. He's never had like any sort of resources. Now suddenly he's like this church that has property he's leading. He's like, man, I'm like, I'm entering new ground where I now I've all, I've gotten very good at learning to, to be comfortable in Christ with nothing. And now I'm learning they have to lead a church with resources and, and assets and stuff. He's like, it's a whole new process. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned Billy Graham's grandson. Can't think of his name. Uh, well, I, I can't say his name. It's some weird sounded name. He will always be Billy Graham's grandson. And he took over the church of Coral Ridge Ministries. What's his name? Like, but I know the church. He's on the radio talking about the book he just wrote. I haven't read the book, but it sounds very good. It says, Jesus plus nothing is everything. And he said, in in this interview, he's describing the Christian life. He's like, as a Christian, you could give me every single material thing in the entire world, and I've gained nothing. Or you can take away everything that I have materially, and I've lost nothing. And that's living life open-handed. And I don't expect that any of us are there. Like this isn't like, hey guys, I've attained this and we're, you know, like a like this smack you on the back to kind of catch up to speed sort of thing. This is like every person. Like this is the world that we know. We're 
the relationships of the friends and family that we love, like these, these are things, this is what God's given us. It's fellowship. It's a, it's a glimpse of heaven. But in our fellowship, in our families, in these loving relationships, we often take our eyes off the one who's blessed us with them. Our stuff. We want to follow after him. And I need help. And this passage is like very uncomfortable. Very, very convicting. And so my prayer is that we would all walk a little bit closer and allow God to kind of help us work on these things in our life. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this hard passage. Lord, I've come to see that hard passages, hard words from Christ and his word make for soft people. Father, I pray for each person that's here today. We each are in different places in our journey with you. For those that are here, Lord, that may be counting the cost, considering or even not interested in the message of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would um, you would con- continue your pursuit after them, Lord, that you would continue um, to give them clarity, Lord, that you would illuminate your truths, that they would have their questions answered. Father, that you would bring them to that place where they can trust in you by faith, Lord. We thank you that it's your grace alone that saves us. And Father, for those of us that have taken the name Christian, we pray that these words would settle deep in our hearts and souls, Lord, that we would allow them to shake us. And Lord, I confess that as I hear these words, my inclination is to like resist, to push back on what you're saying. And Lord, I pray that you would help me just to let go, to allow you to do a work in my heart or to show me areas that I'm holding on. I pray that you would increase my love for you, Lord, in such a way that all relationships and comparisons seem like hate. Father, I pray that you would help me to trust you with my life, that I would submit to the things that you've called me to do. And Lord, we thank you for the stuff that you've given us. But Lord, if we're like that raccoon that's holding on and it's destroying us, Lord, help us to open our hands. Lord, allow us to be able to let you take stuff away from us. And when you give us stuff, Lord, that we would give you glory and keep our eyes on you. Lord, I'm thankful for the work that you're doing here at this church and each individual's life. We love you so much. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.